Before we get into it, I'd like to take just a few minutes, though, and wrap up a few things on, on last week's discussion on the Holy Spirit and miracles and all. And just, just one passage over in the New Testament, Old Testament, that I think will sum up some of what we was talking about last uh, week. If you want to turn over to Jeremiah 23 and beginning to verse 16. Jeremiah 23 and verse 16. Turn the TV down! Sam, we got the recorder on here. That's the reason I was telling her off. be quiet. <laughs> Okay, now, what we had said last time is that, uh, that all through history, there's never been a time but that there were individuals who made the claim to be a prophet of God. There just simply never has been a time. And this was true at the time of Moses. You, you saw when uh, Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, and he had his people who claimed to be prophets of God who came out and, and attempted to duplicate and even could perform some things that seem compatible for the first first few times and we look at the Babylonians and we see that all their kings had their magicians and their soothsayers and their various prophets and all and in fact that the kings of antiquity didn't even go to battle and so they talked to the prophet of whatever god that they served but they've all had it well among the Jews uh, that there were always those who claimed to be prophets of Jehovah God and that they were inspired by him and went out and preached among the people. And this happened all the time that the real prophets were out there preaching. And so I'm starting now in Jeremiah 23, and beginning with verse 16. He says, uh, Do not listen to what the prophets are saying. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, The Lord says, You will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purpose of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret so that I cannot see him? Do not I feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue? in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds. They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has the straw to do with the grain, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Therefore, declares the Lord, I'm against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord, I'm against prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare the Lord declares. Indeed, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. 
They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies. Yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit this people in the least, declares the Lord. Then come on down to verse 24. If a prophet or a priest or anyone else claims that this is the oracle of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. This is what each of you keeps on saying to his friend. Okay, in verse 36. You must not mention the oracle of the Lord again, because every man's own word becomes his oracle. So you distort the words of the living God, the Lord Almighty, our God. This is what you keep saying to the prophet. Okay, now, we can see, obviously, that there were a number of people among them that had dreams and visions and went out and preached to the people and said, God is speaking through me. And they were saying things that were contrary to God's law, so much so that people were disobeying God and disobeying his word in various ways and following these prophets. Well, then, obviously, before we even read anything else, if two people are presenting a message and each claim that that message is of Jehovah, there has to be some way that you can test other than just the claim of the individual. That if, if, uh, if we're going to believe a person is inspired by God simply because he claims it, then there'd be no way of denying these, these people here. Now, Moses had made the statement in uh, Deuteronomy 18 that uh, the Lord thy God will raise up a prophet like unto me and to him shall you hear. And this would eventually, in its ultimate, be fulfilled in Jesus, but right after Moses, and all the way up to the time of Christ, God always had prophets, like the one that came behind uh, Moses was Joshua. Without exception, every one of these prophets, God identified them in some miraculous way. In fact, he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 22, Now if a man speaks, and you have question in your heart, you know, whether or not he's speaking it out of his own mind or God speaking it. He said, if, the, if man speaks and the same thing follows not, then you'll know that he's spoken it presumptuously, that God did not say it. So one mark of the prophet of God was that the things that he said literally and actually came to pass. And if they didn't come to pass exactly that way, or there was nothing in that person's speech as you looked at him where his things came to pass that he said, then you knew that he was not a prophet of God. Uh, in 1 Samuel 3, the statement is made concerning uh, Samuel that God did not let any of his words fall to the ground. And he was known as a seer then. Remember when Saul sought out Samuel, that he told Saul the next things that was going to happen to him over the next few days. And they happened exactly that way. And that was to get Saul to believe in Samuel as a prophet so he would believe it when Samuel anointed him as king. He just didn't believe it when Samuel told him that he was going to be anointed king. And so he told him things that were going to happen. They happened exactly that way. And then he believed it then when Samuel told him. Uh, in John 14, 19, Jesus said, I tell you these things in advance so that when they come to pass, you'll know that I am he. He said the same thing in John 13, 19. Uh, remember, Peter was told that before the cock crowed, he would deny him three times. And whenever that event happened, it said, then Peter's memory was pricked and he went out and wept bitterly. And the same concerning even his, his crucifixion and resurrection. He foretold it all in advance. And that's why they even put the, the Roman guard on the scene. But all the way through, from Moses, all the way through all the prophets, all during the time of Jesus. Uh, remember, Jesus said there would be false Christ, false messiahs that would come up before the, the end of that consummation of the age. And all. all during the time of the apostles, Paul speaks of false apostles in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, John said in 1 John, the fourth chapter, to try the spirits for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So obviously, 
there's always been people, it's not unique today, just to have people going around saying that God's speaking through them and all. That has always been the case. But God has always made it so that an individual could actually evaluate the information itself. And like in the Old Testament, for example, there was the fact that the, everything the man said would be the truth. It would always come to pass. There was the element of foreknowledge within the message itself. There were miracles that took place through some of the prophets. And then, in, like in Isaiah 4, 8 and verse 20, the statement was made that uh, if when he speaks, he does not speak according to my law or my testimonies, then you know that there's no light in him. And so, in other words, the governing constitution of Israel was the law of Moses. And any prophet that spoke anything contrary to any of God's commands, they knew that that was a lie. I mean, that God wasn't going to uh, say one thing through Moses and turn right around and contradict it through somebody else. And Moses told them in Deuteronomy 13 that if prophets arose among them, which he knew there would be, and tried to get them to deviate from God's law, that they would take them out and stone them to death. In other words, he tells you, don't even get it in your mind. You know that God is not going to come along and tell you the exact opposite of what I've given you. Okay? Now, by the same token, before we even consider anything else like that we studied last week on the Holy Spirit, if we have reached the point in our study where through uh, an examination of the Bible, the Old and New Testament Scriptures, we have proven them to be inspired of God. We've seen the prophecies and their fulfillment. We've examined the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And so based on the evidence, all the unique features and all, we've had this proven. Well then, based on those principles then of testing the prophets and God obviously not going to come along and deviate from his command or his word, then the first test of anyone today would be uh, whether or not he's coinciding with this right here. In other words, anybody today that is going to get up and present something that would be at odds with material in here before you know anything else about it. You know that can't be of God. Otherwise, you've got God turning around going against himself and doing the exact opposite of what he said he would do. And so the first test of anybody would be whether or not those things that he's preaching are in perfect keeping with this here. Now, if also, if that person is going to make the claim that he ought to be listened to, just like the apostles for some new information, it was always and without exception God's practice when he gave new information to confirm it with the miraculous. That's why we had all those miracles surrounding Moses. We had a lot of new information being given to man. And then the prophets, as they spoke all through Israel's history, there was always the confirmation so that Israel would listen to them. And then when we come to the New Testament, we've got now a lot of new information that's going to be given to those people in the New Testament. And, that, and we have it literally enshrouded with miracles. Well, then why would God come along today and reveal information that's new without doing the same thing? In other words, why would all of a sudden it become feasible to give new information whether it's through Herbert Armstrong or whoever it may, whoever it may be that makes, makes this claim. I mention him because they make the claim for him that he is a, an apostle in the same sense the apostle Paul was. I, in fact, I used to think that was an exaggeration, but I just read it a few weeks back from their, their, their own publication. But they make that claim for him. Well, why would God, if, if, if he thought it, if, that Paul had to raise the dead and give sight to the blind and cause lame people to walk, and speaking languages he never learned, and Jesus had to do it, and all the other apostles had, had to do it, if they had to do that to convince people that their message was from God, why would anybody today think that God all of a sudden would decide that 
somebody can convey new information to you and without anything like that you just know that it comes from God uh, for example in the book of Mormon when they come around they'll hand you that book and when you ask them to sit down and present the evidence for its inspiration they won't do that what they will do is that they'll ask you to read it and pray and they said if you read it and you pray and you're honest and sincere then you'll just know that that's the word of God well that's not the way that it happened you know when it, when it was actually revealed so anyway I think that it's good when somebody is making these claims just sit down and let them read this over here and ask them let them tell you how do you go about determining when a man is speaking under the guidance of the Holy Spirit because you, you know and here's an example here that people have always spoke and made that claim and let him tell you how you would actually test him on, on those particular claims no point you've made before but I think it's good uh, all of them can't be right they can't all be claiming so why would one expect you to believe him any more than you might believe another one that makes the claim it's when they're all teaching different things right in fact uh, when I studied with the uh, Seventh-day Adventist for example and their claim uh, except an L.G. White uh, what I asked them, you know, it's just like they look at me like, you know, I just don't have enough faith or I'm missing it somewhere because I won't, I can't see that, you know. And then I can ask them, well, do you accept Joseph Smith as a prophet? They say, no. Do you say, accept the Pope in Rome as Christ's vicar here on this earth and an apostle uh, succeeding Peter? No. Do you accept the 12 apostles in Salt Lake City? No. Do you accept Henry W. Armstrong? No. Do you accept Father Divine? No. Do you accept Reverend Moon? No. And you go right on, right on down the line. Well, why don't you accept these people? And so I'm just going you one better. I'm, I'm rejecting L.G. White also. That's the only, only difference. Well, you can reverse that if you're talking to a Mormon. When, when they think that you ought to accept uh, Joseph Smith, you, you can take L.G. White and all of those other and ask them. They'll answer no to all of it. Well, what's the difference between Joseph Smith and these others? Or what's the difference? The Mormon Church has three books here they want you to accept. Are they raising the dead? Are, are they giving sight to the blind? Blind? Are they curing leprosy? Are they telling the lame to get up and walk? Or are they uh, doing? In fact, they not only are not doing this, but invariably you can look at any one of the groups and find things in their teaching that will be at variance with this. For example, Mormonism uh, did not do away with. Uh, polygamy uh, rejoicing uh, they actually practiced and taught polygamy and it was part of the record and uh, the persecution became so strong in this country and the outrage against it that that's when they had another revelation and decided it wasn't the thing to do but right now you've got polygamy being practiced in, uh, uh, in uh, Mormon country right now there was a thing on the news the other night about a Mormon family out there uh, that threw a bomb into a Mormon church and there's a lot of confrontation out there but it mentioned the fact that they were polygamists and believed that they were serving God in their polygamy and and in their attitude towards the Mormon church but they definitely they definitely taught that and you can look at any one of the others too and I can't think of any but that you can find some very plain statements that would be at variance with uh, you know some material that you have right here Okay, anybody with any other thing on that, we'll lay that to rest, if not, as the conclusion. There's other passages real similar to these. Right. This, I just picked this out as a sampling. Uh, uh, back in the 16th chapter of uh, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel 13 is good, too. Ezekiel 13, uh, a whole lot in that deals with the same thing as far as the false prophets and all. 
and Second Corinthians 11 about the apostles. Okay. We're going to study prayer, and I think it's important. To, it's a, it makes a good subject to follow what we just uh, studied because I know my experience sometimes when I sit down and study with somebody about the Holy Spirit and miracles and the way God conveys information to us and the reason for the gifts and all in the first place, it's almost as if, in their opinion, well, you've thrown God out of the picture. And, and you've got God just up in the sky watching everything, and we're just down here doing it on our own, and everything is a, a matter of chance. And so I'm saying that a lot of times, that, that on the one hand, people can see some of these things we talk about, but that is a problem. You know, they think, well, you know, where does God enter in, into the picture? And so that's why I think that the study of prayer, along with the study of another subject that we could at another time is, is the angels themselves, the study of the angels, uh, make a good subject to get into to show that, that we definitely believe, and the Bible teaches, that God is actively involved in the affairs of mankind today, just like he's always been, that God is still sovereign, God is still in control, God is still bringing his will about, that when we talked about uh, the thing on miracles, we're just simply talking about how God conveys his will and confirms it. That's all we're talking about. And how God conveys his will and confirms it. And we're, when we say that instantaneous miracles were used to, con to confirm that this was God's will, we're not saying uh, that uh, when it comes to matters that do not involve the confirmation of God's will or anything like that, that a Christian does not have the the privilege and the power in prayer to petition God and that God would hear and answer in keeping with that petition. So we'll go ahead and look at that aspect of it tonight. Uh, I think it'd be good to start off with just the definition of prayer. And so I'm reading from Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, and I'll read just a few uh, few words that's used to define the various words that are, that are uh, translated as prayer in the Bible. Okay, to ask, uh, to make request, to desire, to wish for something, uh, to call to one's aid, uh, to beseech, uh, to make an entreaty, uh, to make supplication, uh, to make a petition to a superior, to demonstrate a sense of need. All of those concepts are involved in that one word of prayer. In other words, when you're doing uh, prayer, engaged in prayer to God, you can do part of that or all of it, but all of this is involved in the subject of uh, communication with God. All right, now, I think a good place to start would be a, a common place that we're all familiar with because it, uh, to show that it's not wrong to want to know how to pray and about prayer and, and that it is a studied uh, type thing like anything else. So turn over to Matthew 5. Matthew 6, I should say. Okay, um, Sandy, you want to read that? Start with Matthew uh, 6, and uh, beginning with verse, uh, uh, oh, no wonder, I kept looking at that, and I thought, well, that isn't. Right? I'm over in Mark. I'm over in Mark. That's what I was doing. All right. Mark the, or Matthew, the 
sixth chapter, begin with verse 5 uh, through 15. Read about the half of that, and then Mark, you would finish it up. <clears throat> and when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay. Uh, I thought uh, that a few comments that uh, Lamsa made on that. This, this uh, George Lamsa is the one that authored the book uh, Idioms in the Bible. He's an Assyrian and fluent in that language. And this here just simply gives some information on, on some various things about their customs and idioms and all that tie into just the four Gospels. And his comments, he made a few comments on the prayer, or the statement that Jesus made about prayer that I thought was pretty good. First of all, where it says to go into your closet, it says, uh, relative to their situation, he said, houses in the east have small adjoining room known as a closet where family supplies and valuables are kept. The closet is connected with the house by a small door constructed on the wall. As many families live in the same house, there's no privacy. People dress and undress with no curtains around them. While some are sleeping, others are dressing. While some are saying prayers, others are drinking and singing. A minister may be saying grace or performing a religious ceremony, while men and women in other parts of the house are shouting curses at each other. Some men prefer to pray outside on the roof, but this also is a thoroughfare, and playground. Others seek a brook for quietness. The people who pray just to be seen by their neighbors and strangers stand in places where they are conspicuous. Easterners have no prayer books and they recite their prayers from memory. They stand up, their lips move rapidly, their mumbling utterances are indistinctly heard. In the marketplaces, the shopkeepers pray in their tiny shops. Uh, they place their coats under their knees at times, rising to praise God and kneeling again to pray. Okay, then, this is their custom, and he said that still goes on. That's what he's saying exists right at this present day. Jesus despised this form of prayer because these men were doing it to be seen, and they were getting their reward because people thought they were religious and honest. Jesus wanted them to enter the little closet where they could not be seen or be disturbed and where their prayers could be offered in secret to the Father who sees in secret and rewards openly. Obviously, there's other passages that show public prayer, uh, like 1 Corinthians 12, for example, when he's telling the man to pray not only with his spirit, but with his understanding, so others can hear and, give, and give, say the amen to it. Uh, Paul, in the latter part of Acts, when he was shipwrecked, and the others were scared, and he had told them that he's going to be delivered, that he, before everybody, broke bread and gave thanks and told everybody to eat. Uh, there are numerous of examples where the entire church gathered and they had prayer and where people had prayer in a public way. So Jesus, when he tells them to go in your closet, 
Uh, he's not saying there's anything wrong with the public prayer, but they understood exactly what he was saying in their situation, that they literally made a show of it and wanted to be thought of as religious and apparently had any number of different ways that they prayed, and even this guy saying that the, the shopkeepers would have, they would be kneeling down and they would just stand up and start to pray before everybody, or people would be stranded out on the corners and they would be mumbling their lips and in prayer to God. I think uh, one reason why that uh, that might go on more in their situation than in ours, uh, in our society today, it's really not the end thing to be religious. I mean, nobody looks up to you because you're religious or anything of that nature. In fact, it, it's the down thing many times to, to be religious. In their society, it was a very religious society. In fact, Israel was a theocracy, and everybody believed in God. And so to be thought of as religious was a tremendous compliment. And so that they wanted to be thought of, and of course this was evidence even with the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they wanted everybody to think that they were very religious people. When Jesus said, you uh, lengthen your tassels and broaden your plylacteries and call them hypocrites, well, the Jew had little boxes with scriptures on it, like the Ten Commandments, that he would wear on his forehead and other parts of his body. And there's nothing wrong in that. that. That had its origin back in the Law of Moses. But what they would do, they would broaden it, make it real big, so that when they walked down the street, they had like big signs over them, you know, that say, basically saying, I'm religious. And when they carried their scrolls, they wanted real long tassels. And so they obviously wanted to appear before everybody as very religious. And so in a society where it was prestigious to be religious, uh, there were a lot of hypocrites uh, who actually put on a show. And so Jesus totally condemned that. And so one thing we learn about prayer there to start with is the purpose of prayer is not to uh, appear religious before other people, that it's a very private thing uh, between yourself and God, and it's nothing that's to be handled in any trite way. Okay, now, he says also there that your father knows what you have need of before you ask him. And notice in the statements there, as he was teaching how to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, a statement of glorification of God. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, a desire for God's will here on this earth. All right, give us today our daily bread. We see that, uh, uh, by the way, he goes ahead and mentions too, let's see, on the bread thing. He said the Aaronic word bread does not mean bread alone, uh, but it had reference to the entire meal and said if you were invited to eat, it would, they would ask you to come and eat bread with them, that bread was the keystone of the entire meal, that every meal had bread, and some meals had nothing but bread. That was that was their meal. Uh, you, when you read in the book of Acts about them gathering to eat, sometimes it's very difficult to try and determine whether it's the Lord's Supper or a common meal, because it said they met house to house breaking bread, and then also they gathered on the first day to break bread, but uh, they literally referred to their meal as simply the breaking of bread. And so he had reference there to the, the, the entire meal itself, and then on a, on a daily sense, and then asking forgiveness, and then another comment he makes in the Aramaic where it says, lead us not into temptation. And he makes a statement that in the Aramaic, it means do not let us enter into temptation, and he goes ahead and accurately quotes James 1, where God cannot be tempted and he doesn't tempt men, and God isn't going to lead anybody literally into temptation, but you can pray for God's providential care to not allow you uh, to come into uh, situations that would be maybe beyond what you're able to control. 
And I think Paul says some things over in Corinthians that uh, I might too about not God not allowing you to be attempted above that which you're able to bear, but only those things that are common to mankind. Okay, so prayer then is involves petitioning God, uh, making requests of God. It involves whatever you want. It involves making your wishes uh, known to God. It involves simple talk or communication to God in any way. Now, what we'll look at is some passages that uh, put limitations on prayer. In other words, the, uh, the limits that are there from the standpoint of, of God are doing things in the prayer itself that would be in keeping with the will of God. And the first thing I think we could look at is uh, on faith itself. And keep in mind the, the total context on these is not really important because the only point we want to make on these few passages here is the fact that in prayer, that faith in God in the sense of trust and belief in him is an absolute essentiality. That there's no such thing as a, uh, we all can hear the statement in sports that he threw up a prayer. Well, in reality, that's a misunderstanding of prayer. Because if you literally are throwing up words in that sense, according to what we're going to say, uh, they just go up and come down, and that's it. That the, the prayer has to literally be uttered in absolute trust and belief and confidence in God before God even pays any mind to it whatsoever. Uh, turn to uh, Matthew 21, 22, and Mark 11, 24. Let's see... Uh, Nancy, would you read uh, Matthew 21, 22, and Jack 11, 24, and uh, Louise, uh, James 1, 5 through 8. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. Okay, so if you believe that you receive, then all things whatsoever you ask, if you believe again. Okay, Louise? So that was James 1. 1, uh, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who give generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man shall not think, should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Okay. Now think on that again. We could just multiply that obvious the, to that 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 in petitioning God, belief in God, absolute trust and confidence in God is an essential part of prayer. And as you go back all through the Old Testament, every single time you read of somebody that's in prayer to God and God listens and answers that prayer, you're always dealing with an individual that walks with total confidence in God. A good example is Abraham. And we're not talking about just intellectual belief. There's a difference between intellectual belief of something because you've examined the facts and faith where you not only have saw that they're true, but you've made your decision to obey them and put your trust in God. And so that uh, whatever authority that we have, whatever power we have, that we may have it. But unless it's exercised in complete trust in God and belief of 
whatever we're going to pray for, that according to James, then don't even let that person think uh, that, that he would be heard. And so the idea of prayer is being wishful thinking. The idea of prayer is a last resort if you've tried everything else. The idea of just throwing up a prayer. Uh, really, anybody that says that kind of thing really doesn't understand prayer. That uh, prayer itself depends on absolute and, and total confidence. Okay, and the next uh, point we'd like to look at is that we know then that it's something that has to be uttered in faith. Uh, I'd like to look next at the fact that that even for those that believe, there is a certain type of character that has the privilege of faith. And turn over first, let's see, I've got First uh, uh, John 3, 21 through 24. Barbara, you want to get that? First John 3 and 21 through 24. Uh, Sandy, First Peter 3 and 8 through 12. And uh, Mark, uh, Proverbs 28 and 9. And Nancy, Jeremiah 11, and 11 through 14. First John 3. 21 through 24. 21 through 24. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and receive from Him anything we ask, because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Okay, now, the statement he made, he says that if we keep his commands, uh, that then we have the privilege of prayer itself, and we can ask and be confident that God is going to hear us. Okay, uh, Sandy, the next statement there. To sum up, let us, let us all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see God and see good days, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking God. And let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, now look at that again. There's a paragraph there of, of demanding righteousness in the speech and way of life on the part of God's people. And then the statement, the eyes of the Lord are upon the wicked, but then his, his eyes are upon the righteous and his ears in tune to their prayer. And that's a quote from uh, Psalms 34 that he's quoting from. Okay, Mark. Okay, uh, Proverbs 28 9. Right. It says, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. Okay, so a statement there in the Old Testament under that covenant, that a person that just turns his back on God's law does not want to hear that, that his prayer is actually detestable to God. Okay, Nancy? 11 through 14? Yeah. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them, because I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress. Okay, now, look at the statements made there. 
That happened several times in Jeremiah, and that's just one that we picked. But the people were ungodly. Jeremiah was preaching, trying to get them to repent, and they were refusing to repent. And so then the statement is made there, don't even pray for these people because I'm not going to listen, and I'm not going to answer. And if they call, I'm not going to hear. In other words, the idea of a person living in an ungodly way and then as a result of consequences of that ungodliness that now he's going to call to God and God listen to him and hear him uh, that just simply is not taught in the Bible the exact opposite is taught and I say that because so many times you have situations that where individuals bring tremendous consequences on themselves because of just absolute and total ungodliness and then once the consequences come then it's well I'm going to pray to God and this was a situation with Israel in fact when Sennacherib, uh, not Sennacherib, when Nebuchadnezzar brought his troops against the city, after all those years of listening to Jeremiah preach and refusing to repent, when they finally looked out and they saw the Babylonian army coming against the city, we had some people that wanted to repent, and it was too late. Uh, God simply would not listen to them, and they suffered the consequence of it. So a concept of allowing a person to, to live in a wrong way and then, as a result of consequences, you're going to pray that God step in and spare you that consequence. That just simply is not taught. And then also the statement there that the man who turned a deaf ear to God's law, his prayer was detestable. In other words, that again, we can multiply these passages, but suffice it to say that prayer is the privilege of a righteous person. In fact, we'll get to the passage in James on another section where he said the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much before God. And so, prayer then, Old and New Testament, was communication to God, uh, number one, in faith, in trust, and confidence, and reliance on God. Number two, by an individual that actually believed God's law, and respected God's law, and was striving to walk in God's law. And keep in mind, somebody will often say, well, if you're saying that only righteous can pray, said we're, we're all sinners. But, this person who is praying for forgiveness of sins is acknowledging that God's law is right. In other words, this individual that's beating like the, the, the two men that went up to pray and the man that beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, he is respectful of God's law. He is acknowledging that God's law is right. I've been wrong. Uh, Lord, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. And so you don't have somebody there that's uh, flipping his uh, hand at God's law and wanting nothing to do with it, and then, on the other hand, petitioning God. You had somebody that is actually very humbled because he believes that God's law is right and that he has sinned and he needs, he needs God's forgiveness. This person that would pray just when, like, he, he could care less about God's law and then consequences come his way and he repents, that would be just out of selfishness. He just don't want the consequences. It wouldn't be out of godly sorrow. Right. I'm sorry that I've offended God and, and you know. Have... Right. Well, it's, uh, I think another thing, too, it's one thing to pray for forgiveness of your sins. Uh, if you are sincere and everything like that, and only God would know that. It's another thing to ask God to step in and to stop the consequences of those sins. And I think a good example of what she's saying there that. When David sinned with Bathsheba, David prayed, and God forgave him. But God did not step in and stop the consequences. In other words, that God told him the sword would never depart from his house. 
And for the rest of David's life, there were just all kinds of complications and problems in his family that went back to his sin. David's sin, although we have the one thing with Bathsheba, David's sin uh, was in his relationship with women. And he had at least nine wives that are named, and he had children by all of them. And when they grow up, we see wives jealous of other wives. We see children jealous of other children. We see all kinds of fighting and conniving within. And so God, on the one hand, forgave David, and he repented. But he didn't step in and spare the consequence of the sin itself. And I think you can show other examples, too, where somebody could pray and be forgiven. But it's one thing for forgiveness. It's another thing for God to stop the consequence of the thief on the cross. Uh, prayed, was very sincere, and repented. And Jesus says, this day, you know, you should leave with me in paradise. But the thief had made the statement himself that I deserve to be here. Well, God didn't stop the execution. Uh, he, he went to his death. And so that it's wrong to use prayer in any sense. Uh, for example, if I've been a heavy smoker for 30 years, and I'm at the same time I'm a Christian, and now all of a sudden the doctor tells me uh, that I've got cancer, of the lung, and he tells me the reason for it is my smoking. Well, I can pray and ask God's forgiveness for these for those dumb mistakes that I made through the years, and I can be forgiven. But I'm not going to pray and ask God to give me a new set of lungs, because I don't believe he is, that he's not going to step in and stop the consequence, and the same would be true of an alcoholic. He can be forgiven, but God is not, in a miraculous way, going to uh, turn that liver around. And I think this is something important to get across to young people uh, who maybe have a Christian background and who live their life with an attitude of sowing wild oats uh, with the attitude that, well, you know, I can always be forgiven. That's true. I think they let them know you can be forgiven, but the consequences are there. And, and part of God's way of demonstrating his way is right is by allowing the consequences of sin. Okay, so we see in faith and that it's a prayer of a righteous person that, uh, that actually respects the law of God. Now, another point there. Uh, let's see. Louise, turn to John 14 and 13 and 14 and Barbara 11, 27 of Matthew. Again, we could multiply either one of these passages, but I think two will do here. Matthew 11. Uh -huh, and verse 27. And then she's got John 14 and 13 and 14. John 14, 13, 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Okay, notice now the emphasis there for the first time now in this, as we come to the New Testament. I will do anything that you ask in my name. And this is so that the Son will bring glory to the Father. Uh, there are prayers that go up from various things that, uh, that are not in the name of Jesus. Well, keep in mind, God's desire is to manifest Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And God can't do that by listening to requests that ignore Jesus. And there are statement after statement after statement from the remainder of the New Testament that the only way to God is through Christ. Is through Christ. Okay, I'm at 1127. Are you sure that's what you are? I'll read it and let's see. Matthew All 11. things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Right. There is no knowledge of the Father except through the Son, and that all communication be between the two. Uh, okay. 
in John 14, he told Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, in Acts 4 and verse 12, it said, there's no other name given among men whereby we can be saved except in the name of Jesus. And so in the 14th chapter of John, he tells them that, that they are to make their request in the name. That's why that, that Christians through the centuries, when they petition God, petition it in the name of, in the name of is simply a phrase that means by the authority of. In other words, there's absolutely nothing mysterious or miraculous about the name uh, Jesus. In fact, Jesus was a very common name at that time. But when we say in the name of, what we're really saying is, Lord, I'm, Father, I'm petitioning you by the authority that your son has given me. And I'm coming to you in that authority. And that uh, Paul, again, writing to Timothy, the Hebrew writer, the same thing. Christ stands between us and God. We have absolutely no access to him. Uh, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, when they went to God and Christ hadn't come, they went to God after first offering a sacrifice. Uh, Noah, the first thing he did when he got out of that ark was offer an animal sacrifice, Abel, animal sacrifice. Uh, under the law of Moses, every time that they went to petition God, there was always an altar and a sacrifice. And that sacrifice uh, was pointing the way to Christ. And it was a sacrament. And beginning with Abel all the way through, Every time they offered that sacrifice, they demonstrated the fact that they knew they were sinful, they knew that those sins had to be atoned for, and even though they didn't stand understand all the particulars, that was a type of Christ, and it pointed the way to Christ, and God, with his perfect foreknowledge, from God's standpoint, the event was the same as done, and so because of Christ that he could listen to them. So prayer, then, is in the name of Christ. A Jew who goes to God today, by the way, the Jews are not offering sacrifices today. I don't even know uh, how they pray, really, from their standpoint. They can't offer sacrifices because the sacrifices can only be offered up by the Levitical priesthood. There's no Levites. And the sacrifices can only be offered up at the temple. There's no temple. So a Jew today is in the position of going directly to God without anything between him and God. There's no sacrifice or anything. And he just says, so you got a sinful man with nothing between him and God. And that was not acceptable from the very beginning. It was not acceptable under the law of Moses. And then, of course, since Jesus come, that, you know, he's fulfilled all the other. But so we'll say that looking at the Bible as a whole, there is no direct line between God and man. Man broke the relationship with God when he sinned. He separated himself from God. And the, the only tie into God now is through that sacrifice of Christ. And so that... Prayer, then, is number one, in absolute and total and complete faith in God. Number two, uh, it comes from a person who respects and loves God's law and believes in righteousness and is striving to walk that way. And number three, it comes from somebody that recognizes his own personal depravity, his own sinful condition, and therefore he's petitioning God by the authority of Jesus. In other words, I know I don't have the authority. And so we go to him by the authority of Jesus, knowing that our blamelessness and our perfection comes in that sacrifice. And so those are three now conditions laid down in the scriptures. Now the final one, and a key one, is First uh, John, if everybody wants to turn over to First John 5 and 14 and 15. I think it would be good for everybody to look at this. First John 5, 14 and 15. Uh, who read last? I think I did. Yeah, okay. Uh, Sam, would you read that please then? First John 5 and verse 14 and 15. And, and this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, he hears us in whatever we ask, 
We know that we have the requests which have been asked for from him. Okay, now think on that. This is the confidence that we have towards God. That if we ask anything according to his will now, we know that he hears us. Then we have that petition. So there's two things he mentions there. Now, actually, John, remembers mentioned three because we just read 1 John, the third chapter, where he says that God hears us because we keep his commands and do the things that's pleasing in his sight. And then he says that we can approach God in confidence. And that confidence is number one when we ask, he says that you ought to be confident that when you're asking, God is listening and God is going to answer. But, he said, if you ask anything according to his will. Now, that's a key ingredient, because a lot of times when we talk about uh, healings and things of that nature today, of a miraculous nature, uh, someone will say or try to leave the impression that if you don't believe they can do this, you just don't have enough faith. And that's not true. I believe God can heal a person or give sight to the blind or do anything he's ever done. The question is... Is that in keeping with God's will? In other words, when, when my father uh, was having a heart attack, was it in keeping with God's will for me to instantaneously call on God to give him a brand new heart? And uh, when John Clayton's son lost his eyesight this summer so that he's totally blind now, is it in keeping with God's will for him to say, uh, God, heal him instantaneously right now, and he'll have his sight? That's the question. Uh, are those are those instantaneous miracles in keeping with God's will so that anytime somebody we love uh, has that, that we call and petition God in, in that way? That's the question, not can God do it, okay? Now, what we pointed out last week is that miracles of an instantaneous nature, every time the Bible gives us a reason for their taking place, it's always to confirm and prove that that message was from God. Uh, the sick were only going to get sick again. Again, the people who were raised from the dead, sooner or later they were going to die again. And uh, everybody was going to go out of this world one way or the other. Well, people don't die. And so that the reason was just simply to confirm itself. All right, now, John makes a statement that the prayer has to be in keeping with God's will. And I'd like to turn now and read a few examples of some very righteous people that wanted something but it wasn't in keeping with God's will. And it just simply didn't happen the way they wanted it. Okay, the first in of Luke uh, 22, 42 through 44. One thing I think it's good to always um, think about too, that God's will is for our benefit. He, he loves us more than even our earthly father does. And he wants what the very best for us. So whatever that is, is his will. Whatever, for our spiritual good, that is his will. So right. whatever we would pray, it's really, to me, it's a safeguard But if you, because something that you want might not be the best thing for you spiritually, and it might not be the best thing for your family or those around you. And so if you pray, you know, if it's in keeping with your will, to me that's a safeguard because the very thing you're asking for may not be for your good. And there's some things that you can know positively when you pray are in keeping with God's will. And we'll look right. at those two. But I think on that, that is important. The, uh, that if you'll think of it from the standpoint that uh, our relationship to our children, what good parent says yes to everything your children ask for? We just, we, we just don't. Because a child often asks for things 
that's not for his good, but he doesn't realize it at the time. Well, if that's true in our relationship, well, surely there's a bigger gap between me and God than there is between my child and, and me. And so with no more wisdom than we have, we can often say that what that child wants is not for his own good, then how much more uh, God and his relationship to us. Okay, Mark, would you read that, please? Father, <clears throat> Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Okay. Jesus, and keep in mind, he's in his, he totally, Paul said, he emptied himself and took upon himself humanity. I, I don't know that any of us fully appreciate how totally he emptied himself. He literally became human so that he could be tempted in every way that we are. And so he uh, learned, he had, to, he had to get his information to the studying. Uh, Luke said that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You can't grow in wisdom if you know it all. And Jesus, remember when he was 12, he was astounding people with the knowledge that he had obtained and all, but he actually studied. Uh, the Holy Spirit didn't come to Jesus until he was baptized by John the Baptist at 30 years of age. And the information he got through then, he got just like anybody else uh, through his study, through the teaching that took place, through his parents, the things that they had told him and all. And then the Holy Spirit was revealing those bits of information that he needed to carry out his function. But again, he could not take Jesus out of this human circle. In other words, if he's going to be our perfect high priest, he has to walk this life just like we do, with all its problems and all its temptations and everything. Remember when he talked about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and he forecast that. He says, uh, speaking of the exact day, he says, neither the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. He didn't know the exact day. It had, had been revealed to him at that point. And so here in the garden, Jesus knows that this is going to happen. But at this point, he's in an empty state. He's figuring it out. He knows it has to happen. It's got to be. But he still petitions God. The idea of going through all that horror and being betrayed and dying in that way was not something that just thrilled his heart. The outcome, but not the act. And so he petitions God if there's any other way. That, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I think that's a good example. If that is true with the Son of God himself, then how much so me or you or anybody else when we go to the hospital or wherever we go, that we have to recognize that, uh, that it is almost haughty, and maybe, maybe almost shouldn't be there, to petition God without having that as part of it, that if it's in keeping with your will, because we don't know what God's will is on the situation. And if you put yourself at that point, Peter didn't understand that. He said, Lord, we'll never allow this to happen to you. And nobody understood it, and yet God knew exactly what he was doing all the time. And so a, a perfect example there of prayer having to be in keeping with God's will. Also a good example how that miracles uh, were not to alleviate suffering. Man, if miracles were to alleviate suffering, why not go to work right there? And remember when he was on the cross, and, and he'd already told Pilate, he said, I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. So the purpose of the miraculous was not to alleviate suffering. Jesus died in the most horrible way. The only reason for the miracle in keeping with God's will was to prove that he was the Son of God. That's the reason for raisining and everything that happened. Okay, now come to another example, I think, that will drive home that same point. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 
uh, 7 through 10. Okay, uh, Nancy, would you read that, please? To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, there again, for the person that thinks that the purpose of miracles was to take away physical pain, or hardship, or hurt. That's something. Paul had the power of miracles. Paul, I don't know exactly. People speculate as to what Paul had. Uh, for example, that uh, uh, all scholars, you'll find agreement on it. It's just that we can't prove it because Paul didn't say. But like uh, when he writes Galatians, he makes statements like uh, he apologizes for his appearance and then makes a statement, you would have been plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And then he says, see with what how large letters I'm writing to you. And yet he's writing a short letter. He's talking about the size of the letters itself. And so by him apologizing for his appearance, when he talks about the pain, when most of Paul's letters, in fact his long letters, Paul didn't write himself, he dictated them. And the fact he dictated his letters, and then he, when he did write, he wrote and even commented on how large his letters was. The speculation was that Paul had some kind of eye disease, maybe glaucoma in some way, that would have caused a... Uh, pain at the same time affected his appearance. That's speculation. Suffice it to say, though, whatever he had for a man like Paul to actually plead with God three different times, it had to be pretty bad. It was pretty painful. But notice what God said. My grace is sufficient. And there was a reason. Now, where it says that uh, the statement, so that you be not conceited because of your many revelations, the some of the translations say that so that you be not exalted for your many revelations. Uh, when you look at the Greek, either possibility could be there, but the principle is the same. In other words, whether he's saying that God doesn't want you as a person exalted, that he wants the message exalted, and, and see, Paul was going to write half the New Testament, and God knew it, or whether he's saying that, uh, that so many revelations had come through Paul and so many miracles that there was a possibility that Paul himself might become a little proud or conceited, uh, that whichever way it was, God said, this is where you're good spiritually. And so then Paul goes ahead to say that in being weak, he's strong. And I mean, uh, that's almost a, that's a paradox to us. How can you be weak and strong? But in being weak physically and being a sickly person physically, he was strong spiritually because it kept him from being exalted. It kept him from pride because of the tremendous things that were taking place through him. And so there again, he was far as good spiritually. But a good example that they couldn't just exercise these miracles in any situation. That, and that the, another good example, that the purpose of the miracle was not to alleviate pain. The purpose was to confirm a message. Paul had a problem, and he was going to live with that problem. And God let him know that that was part of his life here in, here in this world. Okay, another example. Uh, turn over to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 23. And remember, Timothy was a man that had a gift through the laying on of the Apostle Paul's hands. And, of course, he was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul taught him. Uh, Paul had the power of healing. And we have examples of where Paul healed people. But yet, Timothy has a problem. 
And notice Paul's comments to him. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 23. Uh, Jack, would you read it, please? No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Okay, now notice about Timothy. He not only had some problems, but Timothy apparently had frequent ailments. And he says, no longer drink uh, water. Literally, the Greek would be saying, no longer drink water alone, but also, but drink some wine for your stomach and your many infirmities. Timothy was apparently so totally against any use of wine at all that he wasn't even going to use it for medical reasons. And so from what I've read on this, they would take wine and mix it, in other words, the, to various strengths in water itself and drink it. And again, from, from what I gather, I don't know of uh, uh, anyone, any doctor or any scientific study or anything that would tell anybody that wine in moderation is going to hurt you. And there's been studies that have been done to show that in moderation that there can actually be good medical effects. Uh, there was a thing that came out not too long ago in uh, the uh, some publication, well, Parade had it, but they copied it from another publication. I forget which publication they got it from, but pointed out that individuals who drank but were moderate and controlled it and all actually lived longer than others. Now, I don't necessarily think the way they used that was a valid uh, way of using it in the sense, it seems to me that a person that could control alcohol and be moderate probably has control of food and a lot of other things, cigarettes and everything else, too. And so you might just see the effect of self-control in, in that type of thing. But suffice it to say that, that wine has been used for medical reasons. We have a lot of medications that have alcohol in it, all kinds of medications that have alcohol in it. So uh, Timothy apparently was just not going to have anything to do with it. Paul is, if I understand him, Timothy, that's silly. You know, it's wrong to get drunk, but there's nothing wrong in using it for medical reasons and go ahead and mix a little wine with your water for your stomach's sake. And so that uh, they didn't have a lot of things that we have, but apparently there was a medical effect that was positive from that, and Paul recommended it to him. And then also referred to his many ailments there. So we see that Timothy had stomach problems. Uh, he had many or frequent ailments, and nobody healed him. Um, and, and yet here's a man that's a preacher of God that Paul wants to do a great work. Obviously then... The purpose of the miracle was not to heal, it was to confirm, and, and it wasn't just used in an indiscriminate way like that. Okay, another example we'll use this to sum up with on this type thing. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 20. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 20. Okay, uh, Louise, would you read that, please? Erastus stayed in Corinth and left Prophet was sick in Miletus. Is that the right one? Yeah. In other words, it, uh, Paul, uh, as he departed, he went on his way. He left Erastus at Corinth, and then he left Trophimus at Miletus sick. All right, the point is, Paul needs help, and he's short of godly people. Trophimus got sick, and he was with Paul. What did Paul do? Left him. Left him sick and went on his way. Uh, Epaphroditus got very sick, almost to the point of death. He got well again, but he got very sick, almost to the point of death, when he was with the Apostle Paul. The point being that we can see that just going around indiscriminately healing people every time they got sick was not a part of the church of the New Testament. 
there was a when healing took place of a miraculous nature. Now keep in mind we're we're we're, we're making a difference between miraculous healing and healing that a type that we will pray for. We'll talk about. But when healing took place of a miraculous nature, I'm saying it had a purpose, and it was to confirm a message. And if that message has already been confirmed, and you're a strong believer, and the people involved are, it served its functions and all. And so Timothy had his infirmity. Paul chose not to heal Timothy, couldn't heal himself. And then, of course, we're seeing the situation with Jesus. Trophimus was sick, and he left him there at Miletus and, and went on his way. You know, back to the Apostle Paul when he said, when I'm weak physically, I'm strong spiritually. I think that's true with a lot of us today, that, you know, when you're when people are down and out, they tend to be more spiritual than they do when everything's going real, real well. I think it makes you, uh, the older I get, uh, and I, I think it'll get much more way, more that way as I get older. Uh, I honestly believe that with age, I've become more spiritual. Uh, you cannot age and not think about death. Uh, the older you get, uh, you reach the point where more and more of your loved ones die. And uh, when you see your parents die, your, your grandparents die, and you have other loved ones that are killed in car wrecks and whatnot, and various things happen, and the older you get, the more of it you see. And then you see your own self, and you know that you're closer to it than you were before. Uh, I honestly believe it's good. The whole the aging process is good. It, it makes you realize that, uh, that everything physical is temporal. It keeps that on your mind. It impresses on your mind how foolish it is to lay up all your marbles on this earth or put so much stock in the physical things of this life. And not only that, but with youth, sometimes comes the pride of life. Uh, when you're young, you know, you're stronger and you can do so many things and all. And uh, as you begin to age and realize that uh, the body becomes more frail, uh, I used to go play basketball all day long. And when I go play with them now, I play three or four games and I quit because if I go ahead and play like I used to, I mean, even if I was playing in good shape, I can't do it like I did once before because the next day I can feel it in the small of my back and I can feel it in my shin, I can feel it in my knees. And what it is that uh, my joints and my bones and all the liquid and everything that's involved in that is, is aging. So I just, I just simply cannot do that. Uh, like I, I did at one time, and that's going to get more as we as we get older. But I think that's right. I think that all of these things, sickness, uh, I've been fortunate in that I have not been sick very often. Uh, but even though it's unpleasant, I think sickness is a spiritually good experience that uh, it just it keeps you aware of just how frail you are. Uh, I really do. Wasn't it, um, wasn't it Solomon that said it's better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because the wise will take it to heart. Right. Ecclesiastes 7, better go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all men and the wise will take it to heart. From a spiritual standpoint, Solomon's saying that you're better off at the grave or the funeral that uh, that's the end and you, it'll cause you to actually take it to heart. I think we all get hung up on physical. You know? Yeah. We, we've not experienced the spiritual and so when we go to a hospital or something, we just think physical and not even uh, that if we do die, that we're a lot better off. It's just like we don't even think in those terms. I can see. There, I think there's physical. a time of prayer in there. Uh, a good example, Hezekiah was going to die. And Hezekiah didn't have his house in order. And so he prayed to God, and it wasn't so that he wouldn't die. He knew he was going to have to die, but he wanted time to get his house in order. 
and God gave him 15 years and he got his house in order and died. And all that was involved in that, you and I again would have to speculate, but I'm saying at least his, apparently, his prayer was noble before God, that there were some things that he wanted to accomplish and do right here. When David uh, committed adultery, the penalty under the law of Moses was that his life should have been taken. I mean, that was a penalty for adultery under the law of Moses. Okay, now David, as we've already said earlier, definitely suffered the consequences of his sin. But he asked God in his prayer in Psalms 51 to spare him from blood guiltiness. And that, was, that demanded that his life be taken. And he gave a reason for it. He said that he would treat transgressors the ways of God. And then he went on to express all the anguish that he had suffered, the mercy of God, and he wanted the opportunity to teach others so that they wouldn't make the same mistake. God granted his request. And so that there's, uh, again, there's a difference between a, a selfish desire to just live and enjoy life, or maybe, say, a parent who wants to rear their own children uh, to adulthood and, and in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if that's, if that's possible and all, or for a person who's involved in wanting to do something positive for the Lord. I think all of that kind of thing is, is quite different. So the question is not whether you're praying for more life or whether you want better health or whatnot, but why do you want it? You want it just for your own selfish use or are you honestly thinking spiritual when you're thinking in terms of, of what, whatever it may be? Okay, let's, uh, uh, we've established now, let's go back and look. Number one, prayer that is effective and listened to by God and answered by God is first of all in faith and trust. Uh, it's uh, second of all, uh, from a righteous person that really respects and loves God's law. It's third of all, uh, in the name of Christ, the recognition, and that, there's humility, I think, involved in understanding that, the recognition that, that we are separated from God because of sin and that we have no right, no authority to go to the creator of the universe who's perfectly holy except through the authority of Christ. And the other is that our prayers have to be in keeping with God's will. And there are some things that we can know exactly there are other times where we find ourselves praying like Jesus or like Paul, maybe Timothy, maybe Trophimus, and saying, Lord, you know, if this is your will, fine. You know, that, that's what I want, you know, if it is your will. Uh, Hezekiah prayed that way, and God granted the request. All right, now, let's turn over to 1 Kings, the third chapter, and look at an example. Now, this takes place in a vision, but still, it was, it was, it, that's the way God communicated, and it took place, and he listened to it, and it's a good example of prayer that was uh, in keeping with God's will. Uh, 1 Kings, the third chapter, and uh, beginning with verse uh, uh, 4. And let's see, that'll uh, come on down through verse 14. Uh, who read uh, last? Louise, did you read last? Year? Okay. Barb, would you read that uh, 4 through, uh, let's see, the break, 4 through about verse 9, and then Sandy 10 through uh, 14. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. For that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gideon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for, for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him 
and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there have, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall no one like you arise after. And I have also given you what, it, what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Okay, notice there when he, in his prayer to God, that he had just become king of Israel, and he just literally stood back in awe of the task. And so then he prayed to God for wisdom that he might make the right decisions and all. And God answered and said God was pleased with his prayer. And then also we learned something about prayer on the other side too. He said, because you have not asked for long life or for wealth or for the death of your enemies. Apparently the impression I get on that is God apparently hears a lot of prayers. Well, wanting long life, the death of the enemies and for uh, being rich. And so he's very pleased that he didn't ask for that. And so he says that I'm going to grant you this I'm going to give you the other also. But then notice the condition there at the end. Uh, if you walk in, verse 14, if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Solomon awoke and realized that it had been a dream, but he communicated to God in that vision. All right, now, when we follow Solomon, we find that God answered his prayer. Uh, Solomon, in fact, became the wisest, and he re literally renowned all over the world for his wisdom. But then we see that Solomon began to use his wisdom in other than noble, noble ways and actually winds up straying from God, disobeying God's commands, and at the end literally winds up in disgrace. And so we see again that Solomon broke the relationship he had with God uh, as a result of deviating from God's law. But here he was <coughs> praying and keeping with God's will and God listened to him. All right, James, remember a passage we read earlier in James 1 said, if any of you lack wisdom, then let him ask of God. So obviously, uh, remember what Jesus, when he sent the disciples out, says, be as wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So obviously, for Christians to desire to be wise, that's in keeping with God's will. And so that when we talk about prayer, uh, that uh, I believe that, that as a Christian, that you can pray in absolute, complete faith as somebody who respects the will of God and in the name of the Lord, that God would allow you to have the wisdom that's necessary to make the right decisions and to do the right spiritual things and all, and I believe you have your request. And keep in mind when we talk about there's a difference between wisdom and intellect. Intellect knows information. Wisdom is the proper use of that information. Uh, remember the Sermon on the Mount, and at the conclusion we've got a foolish man and a wise one. They each heard the same sermon, but uh, one acted on the information and the other did not. And the one that uh, didn't act on the information was compared to a foolish man that built his house on the sand. 
And the other one, a wise man that built his house on the rock. So the proper use of the information itself. And so that's an area. Another area uh, in keeping with God's will, uh, I've taught all my children this and believe it without reservation. Uh, I believe God has always taught uh, before Moses and during Moses and, and in the New Testament for Christians to marry Christians, for believers to marry believers. Uh, before the flood, you read that the, the sons of God began to intermarry with the daughters of men and because of the uh, physical attractiveness there. And the next thing you know, the whole world is in sin and God is destroyed. When God sent them into the land of Canaan, he told them not to intermarry and he told them the reason why. And how that, obviously, if you marry this woman, it's not a believer in God. She's going to have your children and bring that. She's going to be the one who influences and brings that child up. Uh, later on, in Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians said a believer should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He says, what does righteousness have in common with unrighteousness? What does belief have in common with unbelief? Again, in context, I don't believe he's talking specifically about marriage here. He's talking about a whole situation of alliances, but the principle, I don't know of any relationship that's closer than marriage. But again, I'm saying that, that if a person is a Christian and is not yet married, to desire a Christian mate is obviously in keeping with God's will. And I believe he can pray and, and know without any doubt in his mind uh, that God can providentially uh, handle that, that situation. And as a parent, uh, you've got a direct command from God to bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I think to pray to God for the wisdom, for the opportunities, and whatever it takes uh, so that you might bring your child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, obviously, that's in keeping with God's will also. Uh, if somebody is not a Christian uh, that's in your family, uh, God's not going to zap him. Any, uh, they pray all they want to about God zapping him and making him a Christian some mysterious way. He's not going to do it. But what it is, when keeping with God's will, uh, it's part of God's will to be patient. Uh, Peter said that God is uh, long-suffering, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I think that if you've got somebody in your family or whoever that you're trying to reach and you honestly feel for that person to pray for God's continual patience with that individual uh, that they might co continue to have opportunities and all that something like that is you know in, in keeping with God's will and of course we can just go on and on but to suffice it to say that anything that God commands us to do is his will and, and so that any prayer that's in keeping with what God has asked us to do uh, another thing to note too and I think that uh, remember he said to ask for our daily bread uh, turn over to Psalms 37. I was thinking of this uh, tonight. As uh, we watch the news, and something that's on the news all the time anymore is the homeless. You know, and I'm concerned about the homeless. But what bothers me is in this affluent society, they, they never tell you why those people are homeless. They just tell you they're homeless, and they try to make you feel guilty because they're homeless in some sense. All right, look at this statement here. And uh, uh, remember that we've already seen that, uh, that you can ask your daily bread from God. And that, in, the, in fact, he goes on to say that, uh, that seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And God knows that you have needs. And they were spoken of as having little faith because they weren't confident of God's 
ability to provide for the necessities of life. Look at the statement that David makes here in verse 25. I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, or their seed, or their children begging bread. Well, I'm young, and I don't know how old David was then, but I'm 48. I have never seen a righteous person begging, and don't believe that I ever will, in the same sense that David did. Now, I'm not saying that we should not want to help anybody that is in need or anything. I mean, after all, Jesus said, if you're, a, if you're your enemy, uh, you know, is hungry, uh, give him something to eat, or if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. But it does bother me that they convey the idea that through no fault of their own, that these people are just laying around in the streets, up in New York and Washington and all. And I've been in New York, and I've been in Washington, D.C., and I was raised right in the center of a city and was brought up in the center. And if you was to go in and, and get to know those people, you'd find that with the vast, vast, vast majority, it's no accident that they're there. They're not godly people. They're not righteous people that are walking with their faith in God. You're not going to find those people there that you see in those pictures walking with their belief in God, respect for God's law, uh, asking and keeping with His will and doing things. You just simply, you're going to find people there that have messed up themselves through alcoholism. A big percentage of them are, are on drugs. You're going to find some of them that actually have college degrees and got involved in drugs or alcohol. You're going to find people that were very uh, poor family members. In other words, as a result of being a poor wife or a poor husband or a poor whatever, and, and some of them have messed up their relationships, uh, you might ask, well, where is the family of that person? And I think if you check it out, you find there's no accident the family don't want anything to do with that person. When you've got an individual out here by himself, and nobody in that family, I mean, uh, the statement was made by uh, Paul that we're to provide one for another, and he said if you don't provide for your own, that you've denied the faith and are worse than an infidel. In other words, even the unbelievers provide for their own. And I think when you find somebody out here that there's nobody in his family that even gives a flip about him, that's no accident. I think even in the world out there that of non-Christians, if, if you find a, a person that is actually trying to do right and has a need, he's got help. And I think that uh, what bothers me when they portray that, that's okay to you know try to help but I think they ought to convey to our young people and to others that those people are suffering the consequence of a serious lifestyle. Then that can be used to maybe motivate some other people to think. Uh, groups like the Salvation Army, in my opinion, they do more damage than good. They just, when you, when somebody is going to uh, drink and carouse and smoke and, and use drugs and not work, and you just continue to feed them, uh, Paul said, if a man won't work, then neither let him eat. Uh, let me uh, see if he's, I think he's just about to sum up. It's Brad. Do, are you about to sum up, or would you want him to call back in about 30 minutes? No, I'll go, I'll go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll sum up. Oh. Uh, I'll call back later. Okay. He says, no problem, call back in about 30 minutes. You understood that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, he says that might be better. But uh, Brad is a young man that we work with in the Northeast, and uh, he uh, preached. We, I worked with him in a men's training class, and he's the one who replaced us preaching up there and got cancer and went through a long process, and now he's well and uh, doing very well and working and still very active in the church and all that. He's one of the most sincere you know, young men I think I've ever met. 
Okay, you were talking the, about uh, changing, you know, people uh, homeless and that. That book that uh, Barbara gave me last week to read, there's an incident in there where they, the businessmen took the man out and gave him clothes and money and job and all that. And then after a couple of weeks, he just left all that and went back into Skid Row because he couldn't change his nature. And that's the way that, you know, a lot of these people, we, we just keep offering them stuff, but they don't. They still want to be right back where they were. We can't. Well, if you notice on the media, they never point out that anybody's there because. And when they another thing that uh, this was on the uh, uh, this national it used to be National Federation of Decency. They started to call it American Family Association. And one thing he points out about poverty there, they talk about twenty percent of the population being below the poverty line. He said it's no coincidence that. About 22% of our young ladies out there are giving birth outside of marriage. And the vast majority, I mean the real vast majority, of these people out there below the poverty line, you're talking about one-parent families. That uh, Obviously, if a young girl gets pregnant and has a child, uh, she's going to be in a poverty situation. And, that, uh, there's, and so that on the one hand, we talk about all the poverty in this country. And we, but he said, and he, of course he points out, that uh, the, neither Democrats or the Republicans are, are answering. It says the Democrats just want to make you feel guilty and have you keep throwing all the, the welfare and everything at them. Uh, the Republicans say just keep pumping up the economy and giving them jobs, but the problem is morality. That, uh, their, their whole thing, that nobody is saying that uh, that situation exists. I shouldn't say not nobody, but I'm talking about the majority of politicians, but because of adultery and things like that. You could not be elected as a politician in our country if you come out and said that poverty is because of fornication and adultery and a lot of other wrong things and drugs and drinking and things like that. I honestly do not believe in, in our country that there is any poverty whatsoever when you're dealing with righteous people who are trying to do right. And I've been in situations over the years in the church where there would be a person that uh, uh, maybe there was a some problems in the family or a sickness that was eating up all the finances or whatever it may be. But I have never known a situation where that a person had an honest need and they were a righteous person, but that if you could, you could petition the church and get the money for it. I don't, I don't think we've ever had a, when they had that flood uh, down at, or the hurricane down at uh, Louisiana a few years back, well, churches from all over here sent just millions of dollars worth of food down there. Uh, in Ethiopia, they talked about the famine there. We sent more food over there than they could even handle. And we found out that the problem wasn't food. We, we were willing to send the food to them. The problem was the politics when we got over and actually getting that they were starving for political reasons and, and, being, and being used in that way. But really, that uh, it, it does bother me to see that and, and just it's made to look like in some way that, uh, you know, we're unkind. Those of us who live in a decent place and you have money and whatnot, that you're inconsiderate or insensitive or God doesn't care or something like that when Really, that's just not the case at all. And I'm not going to pray for God to put food in the mouth of a person who refuses to work or conduct himself in the right way because I believe that you're praying for something that's contrary to the will of God. And, uh, and I think Paul makes that statement in Second Thessalonians. Anybody with any other comments on uh, prayer? There's a lot of other passages, obviously, that, uh, you know, with time that you're, 
limited on. But uh, I think one of the key things, so far as the misuse of it today, is that that thing according to God's will, and that's the difference. And just like uh, if somebody is sick, and uh, if I pray for an individual that's sick or they're they're going to be operated on, that. I pray for God's providential care. I, I pray that providentially that we, we have access to the very best doctor, that, uh, that everybody is alert and going to do their best job, and that, that all the information and everything available will be brought to bear on it. And then I also know that uh, by causing that person to think positive towards God, to believe in the will of God, that God's will is going to be accomplished and everything, that just thinking positive and trusting in God has all kinds of positive things it does uh, to your whereas being nervous uh, worrying being doubtful uh, I know all of that affects your body in a very in a very negative way being uptight or mad or anything of that nature affects your body in a negative way so that the more spiritual that person can be the more uh, spiritual you can cause him to think the more you can do for his uh, faith uh, then the more you're going to relax him the more positive you're going to make him and all of that uh, God is working through that body that he's given him and is designed to fight and to ward off diseases and then I think that you know obviously that uh, the prayer for all the things that are beyond your control but personally I do not expect a miracle uh, I think that people a lot of times call it a miracle when really it's uh, providential and God working through the very natural things that are there I think one of the big problems I, I know for me is just thinking too small you know the here and the now and not thinking of the whole scope of eternity really you know I, I you know I think we just put too much emphasis on the here and the now yeah I think uh, along with that uh, some of the experiences we have that are unpleasant uh, 